Yo, sup everyone, and welcome to the pilot episode of Critical Thinking Bug Bounty Podcast. In this episode, Joel and I will do some introductions, give an analysis of some awesome bugs, and drop some fire bug bounty tips. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is the uh, first episode of Critical Thinking. I'm your host, Justin Gardner, and I've got Joel Margolis here as well. Say hi, Joel. Hey, how's it going? It's going good, man. Getting ready to uh, getting ready to buy a house, I think, this week. So, oh man, should be interesting. Super exciting. Yeah, it's going to be good stuff. Um, yeah, like I said, so this is for everyone. This is the first episode we've done. I was I just for a little context. I hit Joel up a couple weeks ago and was like. Uh, let's let's do a podcast and we kind of just rolled from there we came up with some topics and this is the first time we're getting to materialize some of it um so yeah i'm i'm excited and i think today we'll we'll mostly talk about just a little bit of an introduction to ourselves um and so you know who your hosts are um and then also uh give just some general thoughts about the podcast and then we'll kind of go into uh, an analysis of a couple bugs that we just selected just to kind of cover some bugs for the first, uh, some technical content for the first episode. And then we'll, we'll end it up with some, uh, with some bug bounty tips. So that, does that sound good to you, Joel? Yeah, man, I'm really looking forward to this. Sweet. All right. Well, with that, why don't you go ahead and, uh, and start us off with a little bit of an intro to, uh, to who Joel Margolis is. Sure. Yeah. So I'm Joel Margolis. I also go by the handle techno geek. Uh, which you might know me uh, better by. Um, during the day, I'm a, I'm an AppSec engineer. I work at uh, Tinder right now, and uh, then in the evenings, I I'm a hacker. I I'm primarily a mobile hacker. That's where a lot of my background comes from. Um, so yeah, that's that's a little bit about me. And are you are you are you uh, are you doing are you doing mobile hacking at Tinder in, in particular, or is that just your bug bounty thing? Um, I do. I mean, obviously, Tinder is a mobile app, so a lot of what we do involves sort of like the mobile security side. Um, but uh, yeah, that uh, it's definitely like a little bit of, of both. Nice. Okay, solid. Um, yeah, for me, I guess uh, I'm Justin Gardner, aka Rhino Raider. Um, I am a full time bug bounty hunter and have been for about uh, coming on three years now. Um, just moved back. F- to the U.S. Uh, from Japan, where I was over there for the past uh, two years, and uh, yeah, uh, just mostly working on hitting some bug bounty programs real hard. I don't have a specific. I'm not like one of those hackers that has a specific program that I crush all the time. Those guys are super cool, but uh, I don't know. That's just not quite my speed. I, I jump around a decent bit and um, participate in live hacking events and that sort of thing. Um, Although lately, uh, Joe and I have been collaborating a little bit on uh, on hacking some IoT devices, right? Yeah, yeah, we've got some really cool findings, really cool research that we've been able to do. Yeah, on I'm hoping I'm hoping the company is going to let us talk about like what what IoT device that is, and we can get into some of the details of that on this podcast because some of those I bugs are know, like <laughs> I know they they don't have the greatest reputation for that, but those bugs are pretty sick. So I'm hoping we maybe we maybe we can do like a I don't know, maybe I'm just being hopeful, but I'm hoping we can do like a masked 
you know, disclosure or something like that. Like, so there's this IoT device, right? And that sort of vibe, but I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's got internet on it and, right. and things and stuff. You can <laughs> you talk know? to it, you know. You can connect the dots yourself. <laughs> yeah. You know? uh, Take a guess. <laughs> that that might be bordering on the edges of, of uh, you know, legality there. But yeah, I, I suppose we'll see. Um, we'll keep them guessing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, all right. Well, I guess with that, um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Yeah, I think that'll be good for introduction. So we'll go ahead and transition then over to thoughts for the podcast. Um, so, <laughs> Joel, you know, I just kind of hit you up and was like, yo, I'm doing a podcast. Um, and I didn't give him much much insight into what exactly we were going to do with it. And I have to admit, you know, it's not fully formulated just yet, right? Like, we uh, we don't we don't have an exact you know curriculum for what we're going to do, but um, you know we have an idea that we want to try to keep it technical, and we want to be uh, releasing applicable technical content every single time we're we're doing a podcast. So I'm hoping you can expect that from the podcast. Joel, do you have any other thoughts on what kind of what kind of stuff we'll be talking about, or any other you know values for the podcast you want to convey to the to the audience? Yeah, for sure. So I think like one of the things that we wanted to make sure is that this is sort of like a consumable knowledge, like Mm. resource that you can go to and like get regular sort of like updates and get informed and like stay in the loop on stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of what we're going to be doing is talking about like volumes that have come out and we're going to try and throw in some interviews. We're going to, you know, talk about some of the techniques that like are going around in the community, stuff that we've personally, you know, done in our own hacking. Right. Um, you know, any like really cool bugs and stuff like stuff we were talking about earlier. Mm. Um, so I think those are like, you know, a lot of it and, and, you know, you did say it's going to get technical. I don't think we're going to get super, super technical, right? We're going to get like Mm. into the weeds, but we don't want to make it so that like, you know, people don't can't understand yeah it, you know and, I mean? and so we're, we're, I, we're sort of limited by the audio medium a little bit because you can't really get that technical with a you know I, I'm, I'm not just going to start reading to you code you know and expect you to <laughs> read me javascript yeah exactly expect you to digest that content with any sort of you know consistency or whatever so yeah i think those are all great points and then one thing that joel i was thinking of which i'm excited about that i hadn't mentioned to you yet was, you know, a little bit of a spin on the interviews, but I'm hoping what we can do is we can reach out to some of our buddies from these live hacking events and talk a little bit about, um, like, get them in here, get figure out what their bread and butter vulnerability is and talk to them about, like, the tips and tricks for that, like, how they find it, you know, what what is their go-to sort of thing. And I'm, I'm lucky, you know, I've got a, I've got a, uh, a mobile hacker in here uh, as a co-host <laughs> who I would love to pick your brain on sometimes because definitely, that's definitely a skill set where I'm lacking a bit. Yeah, man, I think that's a great idea. I, I would love to do like a little, maybe like a mini series of some kind where we talk to all the the MVH from all oh, the events. Dude, and, that'd be sick. And we do a little interview and just sort of get some of their top tips. Nice. Yeah, I, I definitely think we could make that happen. So we'll definitely be on the lookout for that. Um, let me just glance at these notes really quickly here. Oh, yeah, I, I think also, you know, in addition to some of the things you you mentioned, Joel, I think we'll probably... We'll probably also have a couple soft skill episodes um, or like more softer episodes that are going to be like talking to triagers, talking about writing reports, that sort of thing that that's very applicable and like life changing information, but it doesn't necessarily have a technical base to it. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, at the end of the episodes, we're going to 
we we thought we'd include some little tips and tricks. So uh, yeah. we we're we're gonna if you listen all the way to the end and you listen past all of our ramblings and whatever, then we're gonna include a couple little extra bug bounty tips at the end. You know, just personal advice and feedback and stuff that we've seen. Um, yeah. You know, through our hacking experience that we'll you know just sort of share openly with. Uh, with all y'all yeah and i th- I think those are not necessarily <laughs> just full disclosure i don't necessarily think those will be super cohesive like you know we might jump from like ah oh, this is this cool like reversing tip that i i had to like oh this is like some cool scope you should you guys should check out or like an attack vector you should think of so um you know it might be all over the place but those tips are going to be likely strongly correlated to our own bug bounty experiences and how we you know, what kind of stuff we've learned in the past week and like what kind of um, bugs we've found. So uh, hopefully that'll be, that'll add value for you all and, and keep you, keep you tuned in till the last, last bit of the podcast. I mean, it's not like they can't just skip ahead to the end of the podcast. Either, right? <laughs> oh, so, oh man, you know, our views, our listen statistics are going to be all over. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't do that. You know, you, you heard me, you heard me say it. I, you know, I got you if you, if you did it. So I called you out already. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think, I guess I don't, I don't really have anything off the top of my head else about the, the podcast itself. You got any other thoughts, Joel? No, let's, uh, let's get right into it. All right, man. Um, uh, you want me to talk about my bug first or do you want to talk about your bug? I'll, I'll go ahead and talk about mine and okay. then uh, I'll let you, I'll let you go ahead. Yeah. So, um, I know, I don't know who, you know, checks out the hacker one hacktivity but there's a lot of really cool stuff in there all the time and uh you know if you're ever looking for techniques like hacktivity is a great place to look um you can always see like you know what they got for a bounty like the details of the the report is often disclosed um you know you can see what programs are paying nicely like what things are mm-hmm. paying for so it, it gives you a lot of information about sort of like what you might want to put your focus on and um yeah, a couple months ago there was a researcher who goes by uh, yvv dwf um they're a big like gitlab hacker and uh, i don't know this this hacker personally but um it seems like they do a lot of really intense yeah, uh poning wow. what a GitLab. what a profile dude you look at this guy's it's, profile it's Jeez. really crazy yeah crazy stats crazy bugs crazy crits crazy payouts 7.0 signal over the last 90 days dang you know like really really impressive stuff and um and one of the reports uh has been at the top of the activity for for a couple of weeks um because it just caught a lot of tra- uh, traction they got full rce in uh in gitlab via github import so you may or may not know that uh, gitlab has the ability to import repos from github um so you can you know you want to move over to gitlab or whatever you can import it directly from your github url and it uses octokit to do that to get the data from github and uh the way that you know i won't get too into the weeds on it but gitlab octokit uses this class called sawyer uh, that sort of like hashes you know different ids and stuff into a format that's used within the code later okay so Um, is this a this is a bug in octokit then or is this a is this a gitlab like native code sort of thing yeah, so interestingly, you'd think that it might be an OctoKit issue, but I don't think it's in, it's something that's inherently wrong with like Sawyer or the class or like OctoKit itself. Okay, gotcha. It's really how GitLab is using and trusting that later, right? Okay. So they make an instance of this object and then they're like using it incorrectly uh, and okay, they're okay. not checking that it's like, you know, validly formed or that it doesn't have like, you know, in this case, Redis in it was sort of the, the injection vector. So this mm-hmm. researcher found that they could basically replace um, this ID, you know, when they're importing a repo, they could change this ID to like an object that would then get ingested, 
converted into like a legitimate Ruby object, and then they could inject Redis commands. And from there, um, they were able to discover, you know, okay, I have full Redis takeover. They tried getting a netcat shell or curl or something, but they were blocked, um, which oh. is the case nowadays. You know, yeah. it's really hard often. Nowadays, they just have firewalls and, you know, IP allow lists and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, so yeah. It, it, they make it really difficult to actually get an exfil. Um, but uh, they were able to, to actually get out through Redis directly. So they basically set oh, up... Oh, dang. Yeah, they sent it a command to basically like make a replica of the Redis server onto their own Redis server. Oh, nice. And then, they started getting pings, so they were like, okay, this is legit. They set it up on their own local. They just double-checked, right? They saw that there was, like, tons of Redis access, so they basically had full Redis takeover, which is, like, <laughs> you know, That's okay, bad. already basically pwned it at that point. Um, but they wanted to go further. They wanted to get RCE, so they put together this, you know, crazy payload. Um, oh, my gosh. Look and, at this monstrosity. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's super wild. Basically, what it does is it, they, they, like, poisoned their own GitLab like profile like the project their like image for right and then oh they like <laughs> it sort of had like some XSS payload in it and then every time they load the page it just like 500s so wow. even I think at the time of writing the ro report they said that they were unable to uh, to actually load their project page anymore just 500s every time they try and load it oh no <laughs> <laughs> so so they forever broke it I don't know if they were actually able to get a full RCE mm. um, but I would I would say that like they're pretty close yeah, like, I mean, yeah it's at, like, at that it's point 33k 33k bounty so it's it's you know the get the GitLab team doesn't like hand those out like like cookies you know so that it's got to be a pretty serious one yeah exactly so it's re it's really really cool to see stuff like this i think like GitLab is one of those awesome like unique programs where yeah, it, great it, it's so cool because I mean, it's all open source, right? Like yeah. all of GitLab's source code is like public, right? Like, and everybody always says, oh, you know, like open source is more secure, right? But like, yeah, <laughs> I don't, GitLab pays a lot of bounties, yeah, but <laughs> I, I don't think it means more secure, but I think it does give an awesome opportunity for hacking. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, I think, uh, you know, there's definitely a trade-off, right? Because they definitely wouldn't be getting this much attention from the bug bounty scene if they, they didn't have open source so they're definitely cleaning up their their scope a little bit but also like definitely would not be these bugs would not be found if it wasn't for for uh you know having the source code available so yeah wow yeah so just, gitlab is one of those programs i've just i've always in the back of my mind i've been like dang i should really yeah should hack and GitLab. I'm, i should hack gitlab i'm actually kind of surprised i just clicked on the gitlab's like thank page or whatever but i don't see alex chapman up up in the top 10 even for that oh man you I, know I, what that means we have a chance i know yeah i was just i'm <laughs> kind of surprised because it's like alex alex's thing is is git so i i'm kind of surprised he's not not yeah. looked at this so much or maybe he has and just you know has more luck with github or with uh you know some of the other things that i won't disclose that he's absolutely destroyed but um <laughs> Yeah, definitely seems like a ripe scope. And there's definitely crits being found on this, like, all the time, so. I might know what I'm hacking on this weekend, then. Yeah, this seriously. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm looking through this. And so what, what kind of takeaways would you have after reading this report that would be, like, good tips and tricks we could pass on to the viewership here? So I think, like, one of the, like, you know, obviously you probably could find this doing, like, manual code review mm. but that's not the best route for everybody so maybe what you could do i think uh, a really common like good thing you could look at is that initial payload 
that um, that the researcher tried, which is that they provided this object in the like the ID um, mm, where mm. it was getting pulled in as an ID parameter yeah, to I have see that. Yeah. like this this like object type. And so maybe just like throw that in your payload list. Yeah. Um, you know, toss that at, if you're hacking on a see Ruby app or hacking on GitHub. Yeah. GitHub also written in Ruby. GitLab written in Ruby. They're both Ruby on Rails applications. Hacker One also a Ruby mm. on Rails mm. application. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> who knows? Throw that in your in your Ruby payloads, you know, and uh, you know maybe you'll you'll get a hit somewhere um, because you know OctoKit for sure is a widely used uh, SDK. And I'm sure that Sawyer class is probably yeah. used by other things. Yeah. So it really can't hurt to just have it in there. I was also thinking it's pretty, it's pretty, this is a pretty interesting technique for Redis injection as well. Is this replica, like just clone it out to a different server that you've set up. Right. And I guess you have to kind of insecurely configure your, your Redis instance to accept foreign, you know, replicas just kind of like hitting in to it. But that's that's a pretty cool trick to like exfil and get out when you, you're injecting into Redis, which can happen in lots of environments. It's not just this crazy, um, you know, deserialization or like ID mess that goes into, you know, getting control of a Ruby object and injecting into Redis. You can get that with, with some forms of SSRF. You can get it just with generic like injection. Redis injection itself is just a vulnerability um if they they don't escape you know the stuff that they're injecting right in so that's definitely something to keep in mind yeah for sure and like you were saying um even before they did this replica stuff like the replica redis command they actually had tried some other redis like rce escalation payloads and those are like also great examples like anytime you're hacking on something redis they they use this l push and they said that they use an existing gadget so if you look at the payload it looks like it's it is a little bit specific to gitlab where they're using this system hook push type you know gadget or it's something that exists within the redis instance already but anytime you're hacking on gitlab great thing to try look in github see if you can find some kind of you know parallel there do some research. I'm I'm sh- I'm not a super like Redis expert, but mm-hmm, I'm sure that mm-hmm. there's a ton of payloads out there that you can that are going to be very similar to this. You know how, how I'm just looking through this. How is this ID getting interpreted as a as a? Because it says normally ID should be a number. However, ID and then it lists some stuff. We can inject additional Redis commands by using byte size to limit the previous command when it is constructed into I guess a, a Ruby object. That's kind of crazy. I guess it's some sort of deserialization, right? Yeah, so it it seems that like if you look if you look at the the code that mm-hmm. when it does this GitHub import, it yeah. checks basically each object that it's importing and it and each object within Git has like a unique ID. And so basically it, like it gets that object and it checks, "Oh, have I already do I already have like a cache entry in Redis for this?" Dang. And so that seems to be where, where it starts happening. to fall apart well, yeah where it takes that object and it does like id for already imported cache and then it does some some magic in Dang. the back end that's really i wish cool. i was <laughs> yeah way more familiar with this uh this this source code because yeah man it feels like there's there's a lot of juice to be had there absolutely GitLab has paid a ton of bounties for sure for sure and yeah this is always i guess another really cool lesson to kind of take away of this is really just track your sources and syncs really well you know, he, he started off this attack by by doing a, a GitHub import. And obviously that has a bunch of, uh, you know, nuances to it that are going to create a situation where you're, you know, there's there's 
potential for vulnerabilities. So definitely watch any sort of areas where you can do imports from uh, you know other code bases or uh, any sort of fringe features like that because that's where the sketchy stuff happens. Yeah, now this might be a little controversial, but I think one of the ways that, that I like to look at for bugs, is, mm -hmm. especially in source code, is a little bit backwards where I'll look for something dangerous like a command being executed and then I'll go backwards to see if there's any entry point into there versus being like, oh, this looks like an interesting feature. Let me see if I can exploit something in this by like throwing payloads at it. Yeah. You know, if you have the source code, you know, you can always just, you know, look for those dangerous methods, look at those things. So if you have something like this, if you find something down the road that's like this, mm. look and see if it's systemic, check the source code, see if there's other patterns of it. Yeah, that's that's an interesting. I think there's two, you know, widely taken approaches with with source code review like that because you can try to find, you know, your 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 sinks, right? Where where, you know, code is being executed or something like that. Or you can try to find your sources and then trace them to some something sketchy. And I'm a little bit, you know, and I'm I'm by no means an example of uh, you know, a tremendously skilled, uh, you know, white box code reviewer. But <laughs> I, in my experiences, especially with the, um, with the uh, Grafana uh, SSRF that I found a couple of years back, the, and I kind of talked about that methodology in a talk, but the approach was I was knew I wanted an unauthenticated bug. So I looked at all the unauthenticated routes, right? And then I kind of traced those and where they were going. And one of them was ending up in a in a get request to a, a foreign server. And I was like, this feels SSRF-y. So, uh, you know, I kind of went down that path. And I think there are people that have success doing doing both approaches, you know, starting from a from a source and, and kind of investigating from there and then also starting from a sync and working back. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. All right, I've talked enough. Go ahead. I want you to talk about the your bug. It sounds like you had a crazy SRF. Yeah, yeah. So uh, why, why don't you tell me a little bit about that? All right, we'll we'll, we'll take we'll take it off from there then. Um, yeah. So okay, I I don't actually have permission to you know fully disclose this system. Uh, you know what what kind of program I was working on, but really love this program. Had a really good experience with them, and I'll probably shout them out by name at a different point. So you know, keep an eye out there. Maybe you can draw some lines together, but, um, the, yeah, if you leak it, if you leak it, we could just bleep it out. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm probably just gonna, you know, I'll probably say it in this explanation and I'll, I'll have to bleep it, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, so yeah, so the bug is an SSRF. Um, and I'm just going to kind of talk through how I found it and, uh, and it's on a specific, on a, on a grocery provider, right. And which is in, which is relevant to the system or to the exploiter else I wouldn't, wouldn't tell you. But uh, yeah, so the first step of all of this, it was, I was hacking with a mentee of mine, actually. And um, sorry, I had to get some water there. Uh, I was hacking with a mentee of mine and we came across this panel that was where uh, they had set up access for their various retailers to go on and sign up for the service, right? So obviously if you're a grocery delivery provider, um, you know, you're, you're, uh, you know, you need to have the products that all the, the grocers uh, are selling and that sort of thing. So there needs to be a web application that that uh, that those providers can log into. So we found that system and obviously we didn't have creds. So we started looking through the JS files, trying to see if we could hit any routes or anything like that. And we came upon a hidden signup endpoint that was in those JS files, right? And that's those are my favorite. I know that's that's like the best sort of situation, man. And so, of course, you know, we get in there. We're like, yeah, this, you know, 
I think as a bug bounty hunter, you kind of got to like manage your expectations sometimes, right? So, you know, you come into that situation with like, all right, yeah, this probably isn't going to work, but I'm going to give it a go. And so, um, you know, we we started sussing it and yeah, it, it popped and we, we were able to get an email, uh, you know, saying your account was created, but we couldn't log into the account. And then we did a password reset, you know, using another endpoint that we found there and uh, were able to get access to the account. But at this point, we didn't have access to um, any companies because none of the companies had like onboarded us as like a, a employee at their company, right? And so, so did you have to did you have to go into the JS and like manually make that request, or was there some sort of like web interface that yeah. like you hit slash sign up? Or no, unfortunately, this was one of the because you know I'm a big fan of like trying to use match and replace to like trip trick the client side into automatically building those requests for you because it's like it's really a pain to build it manually but this time we actually had to build it manually um or at least for the for um oh no no actually the sign up the sign up uh endpoint that one was accessible we we just hit that endpoint and, and completed the sign up and the the forgot password was available at the front page um but then later on in the in the process we had to build some custom um some mm. some custom requests um, but it was nice because really that was the show though. Yeah. The, it was nice because, you know, that first little bit, that first little bit that tells you there's a problem that was available, um, without having to build any requests. So, um, you know, at this point we're off, we're in the system, we don't have access to anything. So it's like, is this really a bug? Like, I don't know, maybe. Um, and we start reading the JS files. And, uh, so I start from the top and my mentee, uh, being the genius that he is starts from the bottom, right? And so mm. um, I, I tried the first three endpoints that I found uh, building the requests from scratch and, and kind of using API endpoints that were generated by the login or whatever. And uh, none of them worked. And uh, so I was like, eh, this is a dead end, right? And um, then right then my mentee had, uh, had tried, you know, a couple, finally gotten his first one built from the bottom and it worked. And it was just like a classic numeric IDOR, right? Wow. And we were like, oh, dang. So then we obviously had to suss all the endpoints. And um, and so we kind of went down that path. And, you know, we found a bunch of IDORs, some really, really impactful stuff. And then uh, towards, you know, as we're getting a little bit more into this JS file, we discovered the add product endpoint, right? And, it, you know, it required a couple IDs that we had been able to successfully enumerate before. And so we try to add this, this uh this product and it gives us a weird error like you know this route doesn't exist or something like that and we're like this is the same format as all of the other things that we've been going after and so we kind of like stick it in a burp tab and move on and uh yeah. later we found a similar uh host that seems to also host a version of that api and we tried it on that host and it 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 found the route um, mm. And so that's another cool tip is like definitely check and see if there's different hosts with a similar API structure and see if yeah. you can, um, you know, try endpoints there. So now we've got it working. And of course, you know, one of these, uh, you know, parameters that we had in here is remote image URL um, to load an image of the product. And I'm like, heck yeah, this is my this is my jam right here. So I pop a URL in there, get the hit on the way out. And I'm like, this is great. And then we run into like a serious problem. Okay, so in the response, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, you know, we see the hit on our server and in the response, it dumps back a CloudFront URL, right? And mm. you go to this CloudFront and it's, it says access denied. 
So I know, I know for sure, right? This this bug was driving me nuts. Uh, I know for sure that there is a that it downloaded my response and stuck it in an image, right? So this would be a full mm. read SSRF. And uh, but I can't figure out where this S3 bucket is. And it mm. gave me a path to like the file name and that sort of thing, but I don't know what bucket it's in. So I look, I look, I probably put like eight hours into just looking for this endpoint, right? And I finally found in another section of the application, when you send a request to like upload an image somewhere else, it it kicks back this uh, this S3 bucket. And if mm. you try the path on that S3 bucket, then it works, right? And then so uh, we so had- the routing. Yeah, yeah. So it, for some reason through CloudFront, it was saying access denied. But then when we tried it through this other bucket, um, through the bucket directly, it, it gave us a um, it gave us a uh, access to the response, and so That's at so that funny. point, um, yeah, at that point, you're you know the blood is pumping, you're excited, uh, and yeah, so I obviously hit the AWS metadata endpoint. For those of you that don't know what that is, um, for servers hosted in AWS, particularly EC2 instances, if there is a AWS role associated with the EC2 instances, which we, which we find there normally is. Um, if you hit the endpoint 169.254.169.254, I will never forget that IP address, right? Uh, <laughs> ever. Ever. It's like ingrained in my memory forever. Then um, it will drop to you metadata about, the, uh, about that EC2 instance. And one of those things that they included in the metadata was the credentials to log into AWS as that role, which is like just a gem of a of a piece of information because it's resulted so in good. so many rces from ssrfs it's absolutely nuts so yeah and it's an awesome proof of concept to be like look this is real like i'm getting real data it's a safe way usually mm. if you want to just get, like, get the instance id or something there's a lot more information that's provided through that metadata yeah. api that can be like sort of more safe you know what i mean yeah yeah and and so you definitely don't always have to pull the the um the credentials there's actually there's like i want to say it's under latest slash user data as well is sometimes like some startup scripts for that ec2 instance which i found some worse yep. stuff in there actually before than in the yep. actual credentials so there's lots of places you can you can go and i will shout out my own blog here for a moment this wasn't i wasn't sure that i was going to talk about this but i do have a uh, a little bit of a piece of research on my blog rhinorator.github.io about uh aws metadata identity and how there's like this weird um set of credentials that you can get access to that has some cool permissions so if anybody wants to take my research that i put over there and go a couple steps further i didn't end up getting it into to anything more than like leaking the password policy for the aws account but um there's definitely some some opportunities for cool stuff um using these credentials that are not the credentials that you normally get it's a different set of credentials so definitely check that out dang that's a really cool bug man thanks um, dude yeah in the end we actually we actually got rce on 56 different instances in their network <laughs> whew. Did they pay? Did they pay per instance? They, I wish. I wish they did, dude. That would have been sick. But yeah, obviously, oh, it did. It did get max bounty. So that that was a fun one for sure. That that's awesome. So what would you say? Like the the key, like those key takeaways are for for like what what were like the real keys to like finding that bug and like making it impactful? Yeah, for sure. So I think the first one is you know we wouldn't have been in this system at all if we hadn't read through those JS files. And you, you know, you hear it time and time again and reading minified JS is nobody's favorite pastime, right? 
but it really it really is a good investment of time to go in and uh and find those those endpoints and especially you know just search for some key stuff give it a glance because sometimes it's as simple as hitting that sign up endpoint and sometimes you know like i forget i think it was uh corbin that had a bug a while back where he was like yeah i just took one of the endpoints out of the js file and then i hit it and then it said an admin cookie and i was like what the <laughs> frick you know like those those sort of scenarios are, are out there so it's always it's always good to see that sort of thing um and then I guess the other pieces would be uh, look for when you get something like you're uh, when you're updating, uploading to S3, look around, you know, and you can't and you can't necessarily find where that file is landed. Look around in the application, look at other places where S3 is being used, look where images are being hosted, you know, do your in-depth uh, due diligence there to see if you can find where that might be. Um and then I guess the last one is hit that AWS metadata instance. For those of you that that uh, you know get SSRFs from time to time, hit that metadata instance and uh, and pull down those creds. And also do some additional research into these AWS metadata creds. Someone who's better at AWS than I am, please check it out. Uh, it's it's a really awesome uh, scope, I think, and it could be really impactful. So yeah, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, there are metadata URLs on the other hosting providers as well so like this isn't unique to aws mm, i'm almost mm. certain that azure has one yeah uh gcp has one so you know if you're not on aws check look up the ip address for whatever host you got to ping back from see who's hosting it and mm, mm. you know do a quick google search and and you'll find it another thing you mentioned about js files mm, and they're, mm. they're they're really frustrating to look through yeah there's a great site beautifier.io that's mm. and it'll it's made for like javascript and html and that kind of stuff if you have a minified JavaScript file, it's super hard to read. You can just toss it in there, click Beautify Code. It will auto-reformat it for you. You just put it in your text editor, and you can scroll through it. It's much easier. Uh, I think Visual Studio Code also has a built-in beautifier to some extent. Oh, nice. Um, but, yeah, if, if not, I know that there's like there's an extension that I use that you know does that formatting as well. So there are definitely lots of ways to make that just a little more readable um, and, you know, that'll that'll you can find all those endpoints and mm, do your grubs mm. a lot easier you can read through and see what it's doing yeah absolutely that's that's absolutely essential and actually i'll give a shout out as well to a uh, another tool that i use for for js beautification which is uh p prettier and i want to say this was built by the mixer team if anyone still remembers mixer the competitor to twitch that was out there a while back <laughs> um and it's out there somewhere the link it's kind of hard to track down but there was like this tool called prettier that would you know beautify js and then i think the mixer team wrapped it and they named it p prettier for parallelization uh so it's it's super fast and i've had really good success with it like where other js beautifiers will fail and say like i don't understand the syntax here this one um normally does a really good job so definitely check that out as well for command line based uh, uh, js beautification yeah that's awesome Nice. Well, actually, I mean, we're already in the bug bounty tips section already, <laughs> so let's let's uh, let's keep on plugging along. Um, <clears throat> Joel, you want to talk about about yours first? Since I just dropped that one. Yeah, sure. So um, I I know like a, a lot of times if you're doing mobile um, mobile hacking, it can be really a pain to proxy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a trick that I use every single time. Uh, without fail, Any, whether it's using an emulator, whether it's a physical device, you can proxy directly over ADB. So if you're not familiar, ADB is the Android debug bridge. It's how you 
talk with emulators and devices. You can, you know, open a shell on your phone. You can, you know, install APKs over USB, all that kind of stuff. But you can also, there's, uh, there's actually, you can go both ways. There's ADB forward and ADB reverse. And what this lets you do is it opens a tunnel between the host machine where you're running the uh. ADB commands and the device itself. And if it's plugged in over USB, that tunnel happens over USB. If it's an emulator, it just happens directly on your computer. But you can do ADB space reverse, and then you give it two parameters, which is basically the uh, connection type and the port for the local and the device. So typically that would be TCP 8080, TCP colon 8080 space TCP colon 8080. And what that will do is it'll open a tunnel from localhost port 8080 to localhost host port 8080 on mm -hmm. your host machine to the device. And then on your device, where you would normally set your proxy in the Wi-Fi settings and stuff, instead mm -hmm. of setting that IP address to you know 192.168.whatever, you set it to 127.0.0.1, right? And you're not running a proxy server on the device, but there is a port that's been opened through ADB that goes directly to your computer's Dude, port 8080. And then you just listen with burp like normal on localhost 8080. You proxy to 127.8080. And then any, er, just you just have to remember, anytime you open your device, you're going to have to ADB reverse to reopen right, that tunnel. Right, right. But yeah, it's a super great tip. You don't have to worry. Like if you have inconsistent Wi-Fi, you have weird natting, you have... You know, any types, of, it doesn't matter. It all goes over ADB, so it's directly connected to the device. Dude, this this is a game changer, I think, especially for people using Windows Subsystem for Linux, too, because, like, the NAT that they have for this sort of setup is, like, super awful. Um, and actually, when you when you were making the show notes for this and I saw ADB reverse, I didn't I didn't know what it was. But I remembered when you started explaining it, I actually used this at the latest live hacking event, Um for a for a bug where I needed to uh, do SSL decryption on a non-HTTP protocol, and the way that I did it was I knew which host it was communicating with, <clears throat> so I I actually um, set up ADB reverse and I put uh, I did a IP tables rule on the device to send just mm. that traffic at that port at that host through the uh the reverse uh i guess what, what would you call that reverse tunnel that you set up through with adb reverse and then i proxied it back in through wireshark on my on my computer uh actually it was it was polar proxy not wireshark mm. polar proxy which does the uh the tls uh decryption for me and i finally got to inspect that protocol and some crazy bugs got got found as a result of it so hopefully we can talk about those sometime that's awesome that's awesome yeah um I actually wrote a little bit about this same proxying process oh, in the uh, intro to Android hacking nice, blog post dude. that I did with HackerOne. So if if you want some more info about this, and there's a lot of other like really great tips in there, you can look up um, HackerOne Android hacking, I think would probably just find mm -hmm. it. And yeah. um, there's a blog post in there um, that I wrote uh, in 2020. And uh, mm -hmm. it's got like a lot of just sort of like that intro, like background knowledge, has some tips and tricks for like how to get information um, from the APK, how to proxy, uh, bypassing SSL pinning. I actually included my nice. own That's Frida a SSL bypass script. I included a link to it um, in that blog post, so you can go use that. And um, yeah, yeah, that that's, you know, it's a huge, it, it makes things so much easier. I used to struggle all the time with like yeah. bad Wi-Fi, bad proxy, 
Yeah, absolutely, yeah. dude. And, and and also, I guess that also works if you are, oh my gosh, because then if you're on a network where, like, for example, your phone and your computer are segmented, like if you're at like Starbucks yep. or something like that, then you yep. can still proxy, right? Exactly. Dang, that's helpful. Nice one, dude. I For some reason, I never, I never correlated that that use case but that's that's super helpful nice stuff honestly where it really comes in helpful is live hacking events oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) the the networks are so bogged down from all the traffic and all the payloads and everything that a lot of the times it's really hard to get a consistent proxy going Mm. and like you said you'll be segmented you'll be on a different nat or something Mm. so this just bypasses all that kind of stuff that's awesome that's that's a great that's a great tip and and hopefully you know definitely go check out for everyone listening definitely go check out joel's blog post but who knows you know maybe within the next couple episodes we'll have a little uh a little mobile uh brain dump from joel on the podcast so definitely be on the lookout for that as well um <laughs> so um i guess i'll go ahead and keep and keep the tips sort of cohesive together and i'll talk a little bit about a mobile um reversing tip that i stumbled upon lately i don't know why i have never maybe maybe like everyone knows about this and i don't but i was like totally mind blown whenever I, I found this. So obviously, you know, when you're dealing with Android, uh, reversing, you've got, you've got an APK file, right? And inside of that APK file are, are Dex files. Um, and there's this really cool tool, um, called Dex to jar, which will convert those Dex. I mean, it does exactly what (laughs) what it sounds like. It converts Dexes into jars, right? And so as I was becoming a little bit more familiar with, with jars and sort of like Java, uh, concepts i found out that you can just kind of like stick jars in your class path and then just call classes from within that that jar file and and so i was like and i was working on reversing a a, a cryptography uh function in a specific android app and it just blew my mind because all i all i had to do had to do was take the dex to jar right convert it to dex to jar and then put that jar in my class path and then I could write little like scripts you calling the function, just the decrypt function within the actual app, within the actual app itself, which was like a yeah. total game changer. I don't know. I mean, have you, have you heard it? Did you hear about that before I, is this just me that doesn't know about this or? Well, yeah. So I use that all the time. Um, I, yeah, Shut I mean, up, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I'll say like, especially with mobile stuff, because so much of uh, the mobile apps, like especially the Android stuff, it's all Java when you decompile right. it. Um, you can take advantage of that, like, r- like a lot, right? Because m- m- the majority of the stuff that's being used within like the a- Android SE is just like standard Java stuff, or there are parallels to like the right. standard Java libs. Yeah. So if there's a function that's doing a s- string decryption or you know, there's like, I see this all the time. There's an obfuscation where there's a, like a bunch of like strings, all the hard coded strings mm-hmm. have been turned into a function call that passes in some like byte array and an yeah. integer. And then it c- turns back some like, you know, fully formed string. Right. So the two main ways that I'll go about actually figuring out what that is. One, I'll copy paste the code into a separate Java <laughs> file and I'll call it directly. And I'll just make sure I have all the imports and everything, or I'll launch the app. I'll hook it with Frida. And I'll call the function right. directly on the app through Frida and I'll just pass it in parameters yeah. and I'll do it that way. Yeah. And, um, I, I and think... both of those are great ways to like, you know, don't worry about like trying to reverse engineer some, you know, obfuscated cryptography algorithm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, 
if you really want to know, maybe toss it into chat GPT. See if it yeah, <laughs> identified oh or something. And otherwise, just it. don't worry about it. Just call it and see what it does. You know, see what the inputs and outputs do. Because, uh, it, you know, most of the time you don't actually need to, like, understand. Oh, this is, a, you know, this specific encrypt SHA-256. Right, you know, right, it doesn't right. matter. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great tip. And I must say, like, the last time I was working with Joel on a uh, on this sort of thing, he was like, dude, you just got to rebuild the class in, in Java on your computer. And, you know, because it's a, it's a VM language, you can definitely do that. And I was like, dude, uh, but then I got to, like, fix all this dependency hell and that sort of thing. And I was really, like, not having it. And Joel was like, dude, just suck it up and do it. And so I did, and it really didn't take that long. Um, and it was a pretty complex function, too. So definitely, you know, that is one of the big pluses of Java, as much as I choke on those words, uh, that is that is one of the big pluses of Java where, you know, it is pretty portable um, and you can run it on lots of different systems. So definitely keep that in mind. Yeah. And stuff works the same. So like, even if it's not that you're like trying to decrypt something or whatever, if, if you're just trying to see why is this function behaving this way mm-hmm. or try and get more insight, yeah. you can just, you know, copy paste it. And you'll find that that dependency hell, like it, it gets reduced significantly when you're only copying like one function. Because yeah. a lot of the time, all those imports are for like the rest of the class, and if you just want That's that one point. single function, you can you can dumb it down like significantly. Good stuff there, man. Good 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 tips. Let's let's keep the uh, let's keep the you know ideas together as much as we can here. So why don't you? Uh, the other thing that I was going to kind of pick your brain about in this tip section is JS bridges in mobile apps, right? So you want to talk to me a little yeah. bit about that and drop some tips there? Yeah, sure. So um, you know, typically. I'm sure we've all seen this. You, you know, click a link in an app and it opens like what looks like a browser, right? But it's not like opening your browser app. It's well, it's called a web view. Mm-hmm. Um, and so typically the app has to have some way to communicate with that web view, whether that be like a, a callback or a JS bridge, right? So sometimes they'll be like, it'll redirect you to a URL. That URL is handled by the app. The app then takes data from the URL, parses it, blah, blah, blah. The other way is that it directly communicates with the app through a JavaScript interface. So basically when you create the web view in the app, you register like all oh, this, if you call an object called like bridge dot my function, then mm-hmm. it'll, it'll talk directly with a Java function in the app. And those two can communicate so that you can do stuff like store a system property or, you know, uh, open a view in the app or whatever, right? Like whatever you mm-hmm. need to do in the app, you can trigger that and communicate between the two from JavaScript from the website, right? So that's like really powerful as a developer, but mm. you also have to be careful about how that's implemented. You have to make sure that like you're not overly trusting whatever's being sent over that interface, right? So generally, if you see a web view, it's a great idea to look and see how is this communicating with the app? Mm. If I do something in this web view, what like why do they do it in a web view versus just opening the url right. or like what kind of data is being sent back here is it a login is it an auth token is it just a parameter and i have seen some crazy crazy <laughs> things through javascript interfaces i can't even talk about them i will say yeah. <laughs> on one of the largest social media apps that's out there uh there was a javascript interface that let you do all sorts of crazy things oh including installing apks what Oh my so, gosh, that's there's nuts, a lot dude. of crazy things that you will find through Holy JavaScript interfaces. Um, so, so, so worth taking a look at. How do we at. how do we enumerate these these JavaScript interfaces? Is that mostly like white you know white box code review, or are we doing something else? 
Yeah, so what's great is that, uh, generally speaking, they're registered all, like, in the same way. There's a, mm. there's a, a decorator. It's at JavaScript interface. Oh, nice. And, like, one word. And basically, that is attached to any of the functions that are going to be um, handlers for JavaScript functions from the web view. Generally speaking, that keyword is also just something that you could just search for. Nice, nice. Um, and see... You know, are they? Do they have other classes called JavaScript interface? Are they handling all these registers in one place? Mm. Generally, like that more complex stuff, like like what I just mentioned, uh, in terms of like very complex JavaScript interface functionality, it's going to be handled by some like big class that's like serializing and has a bunch of commands and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's worth diving into. You might like definitely be in the weeds a little bit to like try and figure out like how does all this stuff work? How does it talk together? Um, but if you're ever confused, I recommend just like start starting like at the simplest step and just like try and call that function directly. Um, one great tip is that if you uh, have a web view open and your phone is connected to your laptop and it's in debug mode and you have adb enabled and everything Mm. generally speaking you can open a chrome console over usb to that web view regardless of what app it is because your app because your phone's in debug mode so all you have to do in chrome is you go to chrome colon slash slash inspect and uh it'll show you all the web views on your device so if you have an emulator and you have a web view open in an app it should show up in there and then you can click on it and and you have a chrome console you can run you know javascript through that chrome console you can actually do like you know click to select elements and stuff all that it's really it's really really helpful okay so hold on let me let me let me break that down because that's that's a great tip so you're saying that if if we have everything you know hooked up together through adb and stuff like that we open up the chrome console on our on our browser on our device or on our computer on your computer so like say you're uh, you you're using like example app right and right. you have your phone connected you have it in debug mode right you have adb enabled you can see your device on adb if you're if that app opens up a web view yeah you should then see it in the chrome like inspect uh no way you know tab Dude, it should show sick. up there and you can click on it and you can open a console and it'll show like what it shows on your device in that web view you can see all the html elements you can type stuff in the console just like you would normally, right? So you can actually inter- interact with like the interface. You can see how it works, right? Dude, so that then that, so that gives you like a foothold. So you know like, oh, if I can get this web view to open an arbitrary URL, all I have to do is run this JavaScript and I can, that's it, right? Wow. Like, yeah. That's that's a sick tip. I'm definitely going to have to go try that out on a couple apps after this because I, I have not been able to get that to work successfully. So I'm definitely going to go go suss that after this. And actually, dude, oh my gosh, this actually goes this is all it's cohesive together, yeah. dude. The, so okay, yeah. so the thing the thing that I was going to the last little tip that I was going to throw out there today is actually something about Chrome DevTools protocol, which is nuts cuz we just kind of like clustered together a bunch of little tips and somehow they all uh, came together. So I mean, I was I was looking into Chrome DevTools stuff a little bit lately for some headless browser stuff. And there are a lot of uh, cases where these headless browsers are leaving the remote debugging port open, um, uh, you know, for, for obvious reasons, uh, for remote debugging. And there are some really interesting endpoints on that. There's there's a, a, a slash JSON endpoint in there that will dump all of the uh, all of the open tabs. There's slash JSON slash new 
which when you pass in a, you just put like question mark and then put it a URL directly. Um, that that will open up a new tab at that URL and give you reference to the uh, to the you know management interface for it. And then there's also like this whole DevTools inspector thing where you can pass in a a WebSocket URL, um, and it will and it will run, you know, it'll pull up the dev tools for that. So all of these, you know, I, I thought the the JSON endpoint thing was particularly interesting because I know there are some restrictions around how many pop-ups you can open uh, and like from what events you can open a pop-up. And so I actually did a little bit of testing and it seems like you can, there's some, some pop-up bypass stuff you can do there. Um, and I don't know that it absolutely consists of bug, but obviously Chromium source code is all public. So you can go read through the source code and look at all the other HTTP handlers there. And I bet there's some, some cool attack surface there, some CSRFable content, as well as yeah, some cool attack surface for anyone who's going to be doing, uh, anything in headless browsers with multiple tabs and stuff like that. So definitely give that a peep if you're interested in checking out Chromium hacks. Yeah, so I, so I got two questions about that. So yeah. one, uh, do you just like port scan to find that? Um, so it's normally, <laughs> I mean, you could port scan, and there is some ways that you could hit it potentially with, um, uh, I want to say it's WebAssembly doing port scanning. But normally it's open on port 9222. That's like the default oh, go-to question. port for that sort of thing. So um, I, I, in the times that I've seen it in write-ups and in the times that I've, Every time I've ever seen the de- uh, remote debugging port command, it's it's been nine two two two. So that would be a good um, uh, place to check for see if remote debugging is enabled. Cool, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely be checking that on hardware devices now. Yeah, for sure. All right, so that's that's what we had for bug bounty tips. The last little thing I was also just going to test this out this time and see what kind of um, uh, cool stuff you guys know. I was going to pose a question. Um, I've been screwing around a little bit with. Um, ways to get references to windows in browsers right um and you know with a reference to a window you can send post messages and you can do all sorts of stuff and i saw this or actually uh vax um william uh sent out or sent me a uh, a, a article the other day referencing how you can get a reference to a window where you know the name of it and I tried to reproduce it, and I couldn't get it to work. And actually, I'm talking to the guy that, that wrote the article now, so hopefully I'll get some more details on that soon. But I wanted to pose that challenge to you guys, see if there's any way that you can get a reference to a window using uh, the name of that window. Um, and I think that could be really helpful as we're moving into this sort of same site default land where there's lots of weird stuff that happens when you try to open like a, a page in an iframe or like a page in a window that you you know, like cookies get are, it's, it's kind of like a crapshoot whether, whether cookies are going to get sent from time to time nowadays. So I wanted to pose that question. Definitely let us know. Um, if you have any cool solution to that, you can hit us up on Twitter or you can hit us up at, uh, info at critical thinking podcast.io. Um, and yeah, that's all I had for content. Joel, you got anything else you want to say before we sign off? Now the, I'll just say that that Vax guy, another, he hacks a ton of GitLab. GitLab so, monster, for sure. Yeah, go check his profile because he's got a bunch of disclosed reports, tons of RCEs. Oh, yeah. He actually had a very, like, one week after the one, the report that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, he submitted a very, very similar type of report. It was just another instance of it. 
somewhere else. He saw it from the patch notes. So Dang. yeah, go check out his report. That one's also public and you can go read through it. What a baller. Yeah, definitely. Shout out to Vax and uh Yeah. V A K V A K Z Z Vax. Yeah, weird spelling for sure. That <laughs> definitely check out his reports. And uh yeah, I think that's all we've got for this time. So thanks for listening and hopefully we'll uh hear from you in later episodes. Have a good one, everybody. Awesome. See ya. Thanks again for listening to this pilot episode of Critical Thinking Bug Bounty Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please give us a follow on Twitter at ctbbpodcast or shoot us an email at info at criticalthinkingpodcast.io for any feedback or additional concerns. Thanks.